This is Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. The stories behind inventions. Episode 6. The Iototron that wasn't. In episode 4, we looked at the development of the vacuum tube and the birth of electronics. Bell Labs, the research element of Bell Telephone, nicknamed Mar Bell, tasked to feed Bell's two corporate entities, American Telephone and Telegraph and Western Electric, with technology, materials and ideas, developed vacuum tube electronics, enabling Marbell to go transcontinental from coast to coast and then transatlantic and ultimately global. The tube, or valve, opened up the way for radio broadcasting and all kinds of unforeseen and extraordinary uses elsewhere, too. Meanwhile, in episode five, we looked at the so-called War of the Currents and Edison's ultimately unsuccessful part in trying to suppress AC power generation and transmission. We saw, too, how a man like oil magnate John D. Rockefeller, with his rapacious ambition, crossed the line in corporate ethics, attracting the legislative ire of government. Antitrust, anti-monopoly laws notwithstanding, Joseph Patterson of National Cash Register and his lieutenant Thomas J. Watson employed similar ruthless buccaneering tactics with their companies. Watson, a prison sentence and fine hanging over him, left NCR to head up a conglomeration of business machine companies, eventually concentrating his focus on the Hollerith punch card tabulation system. He changed the name of the company to International Business Machines, IBM, and led the corporation through the First World War, the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression, creating a monopolistic corporation nicknamed Big Blue. Watson fell foul of the government again, being forced to offer customers the chance to buy rather than only lease his machines. The science of electronics, the arrangement of components into circuits that rectify, amplify, redirect, switch on and off and otherwise manipulate current, had by no means stood still since the father of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, put in a call from New York to San Francisco in 1915. Nonetheless, the principle of the vacuum tube had not altered in its essentials. Bell Labs and others had developed many kinds of tube component, but extraordinary as they were, they could hardly be called perfect. They drew a huge deal of current to work and gave off concomitantly furious amounts of heat. And all the time, the subscriber base for telephones was growing, as was the astounding complexity of the system of relays, switching calls through, branching, diverting, holding, millions and millions of times a day via plug-in switchboards, pushed along millions of miles of wires. Although they did not last forever and could be prone to blowing and failing, Research and development had at least extended the useful life of vacuum tubes by the mid-twenties from 1,000 hours to 80,000 hours, a saving in costs that alone paid the salaries of the new generation of scientists and engineers arriving at Bell Labs. Thanks to Marbell's pockets being so much deeper than those of Academe, people of higher and higher calibre were being recruited. Two such recruits, are worthy of special notice. One was a tall, exceedingly thin fellow from a small town in Michigan called Claude Shannon. The fellow was called Claude Shannon, not the small town in Michigan. That was called Gaylord. Claude Shannon was descended from English-born John Ogden, an early American pioneer and engineer of mills and dams. This connection made Shannon, as he later discovered to his delight, a distant cousin of his childhood hero Edison, who could also claim Ogden as an ancestor. In his early twenties, Shannon, after getting a summer job at Bell Labs and observing switching relays and circuits in action, wrote a master's thesis in which he expressed the idea that electrical switches could operate in the same way as Boolean logic, 
1937 paper, A Symbolic Analysis of Relay and Switching Circuits, has been called possibly the most important and also the most noted master's thesis of the century, and even the Magna Carta of the Information Age. We will turn to what Boolean logic might be and why this thesis was so important before long. Shannon's academic supervisor at MIT in the 1930s was Vaniva Bush, a thinker also responsible for a single remarkable work whose influence is felt today. His paper, As We May Think, is considered by many to be one of the foundational documents of the information society, opening up the possibility of everything from the mouse to Wikipedia. Under Vanivir Bush, Shannon worked on an early kind of analogue computer called a differential analyzer, described by a contemporary as a fearsome thing of shafts, gears, strings and wheels rolling on discs. It was, in essence, a fast calculating machine, greatly in demand by scientists who wanted to do long and difficult calculations for the analysis of phenomena like electron scattering, crystallography and similar number-crunching tasks. It so happens that in 1937, the same year that Shannon published this paper, another equally important one was being presented in Cambridge, England. A young mathematician just four years older than Shannon, by the name of Alan Turing, had, in order to solve some vexing fundamental questions in pure maths, posited as a kind of model, metaphor or paradigm an abstract universal machine that could, in theory, solve any mathematical problem using an imaginary read-write head which operated like a notional teletype on a strip of paper. Turing didn't do so as a design for a real machine, but, as I say, to settle questions raised by David Hilbert and Kurt Gödel as to the fundamental properties and problem-solving capacities of mathematical, algorithmic and number theory at the deepest and purest non-applied level. Nonetheless, between them, Shannon and Turing had, quite unwittingly, in what has been called Digital Computing's Annus Mirabilis, or Year of Wonders, laid out precisely the terms on which future computing science would operate. World War was to bring the two men together. In the early 1940s, just before Pearl Harbor, Shannon officially joined the mathematics department at Bell Labs under the charismatic direction of Thornton Fry. All fries are charismatic, incidentally. There are no exceptions. From the first, everyone recognised that Shannon was remarkable and different. He was quiet, a pipe smoker, naturally. In those days, you could hardly call yourself a boffin unless you were wreathed in tobacco smoke. He liked to ride unicycles and play jazz clarinet, analyse chess positions and keep himself to himself. But for all his shy, whimsical charm and sweetness of manner, he had an air. From the first, people treated him with some awe. His thesis had already won him awards, and within the small world where mathematics and electrical engineering intersected, a measure of fame and éclat. Scientists tend to refer to colleagues and rivals guardedly as capable, efficient, quite knowledgeable, able and sometimes even good. We might meet a physicist described by his peers as perfectly competent, and as amateurs we would think to hear them talk and see them draw equations and graphs on a blackboard that they were geniuses of the very highest order, certainly compared to us, but gather lots of such figures together in a university or research lab, and they might indeed seem ordinary but occasionally, very occasionally, the entire community of science can agree that one figure or another stands out enough amongst them to merit the word brilliant. Shannon was always such a man. It wasn't as if he could do rapid calculations in his head, ask him to multiply two double-digit numbers together, 17 by 24, for example, and he'd reach for pencil and paper but he was universally recognised as exceptional amongst the exceptional. Albert Einstein told his wife, Norma, you are married to a brilliant, brilliant man. Two brilliants, 
from Einstein. No prizes can match that. The third hero of today's podcast, after Shannon and Turing, though hero isn't perhaps quite the right word, was a very different kind of man, but also one universally recognised as brilliant. His name was William Bradford Shockley, Jr. We British could claim him, along with Turing, since he was born in London, but he was raised in the small town of Palo Alto, in the Santa Clara Valley, California. It was the town that Leland Stanford, leader of the Big Four Railroad Barons, chose as the site for the university that bears his name, the beneficiary of his enormous, and let's be honest, rather ill-gotten fortune. The fact that William Shockley was raised in Palo Alto, California, is one of the most important facts I know. It has colossal ramifications. Shockley arrived at the Bell Labs a little earlier than Shannon and was more concerned with material science than mathematics or logic. In fact, his greatest interest lay in what was known as solid-state physics. There was a time when a solid thing, like a crystal or a metal, was regarded as just that, uh, a solid. But science knew now that all materials had a world of atomic excitements going on inside them. Different materials exhibited different properties at the atomic and subatomic level. The disposition and quantities of the bands of electrons whizzing around the nucleus, for example, altered the conductivity or resistance of a material. Copper, everyone knew, was a good conductor of electricity. That's why it was the preferred metal for power cables and electrical wiring. Glass, on the other hand, was a terrible conductor. Not always a bad thing. Your terrible conductor is my good insulator. The ability of materials to conduct or insulate was part of the game of getting electricity to behave the way scientists and engineers wanted it to behave. Certain materials, and this is what interested Shockley, were not very good as insulators and not much good as conductors either, which to you or me may sound like a dead end, but which to Shockley and others suggested intriguing possibilities. In the early days of radio, the cheapest usable devices for listening to broadcasts were the so-called crystal sets, using a component known popularly as a cat's whisker, made of iron or galena or molybdenite or carborundum or sometimes silicon. The cat's whisker, or crystal detector, worked as an early kind of rectifier, converting the current from AC to DC, utilising the special quality of just those materials which, despite being in different conductors and in different insulators of electricity, could work as a kind of valve, allowing almost no resistance in one direction while offering high resistance in the other. Today, we would call such one-way components diodes and the media with those special properties semiconductors. They were indeed the cat's whiskers. They could perhaps have been called semi-insulators, but semiconductors stuck as a name. They were elbowed aside by the great development of the vacuum tube triode, but Shockley was convinced that the semiconductor principle could be used to make a solid-state version of a tube where electron flow was controlled not in a vacuum, but inside the structure of a solid material. This might solve the problems of unreliability, high current draw and heat. He experimented using copper oxide as the semiconductor medium, but World War II came along and he was forced into different avenues of work. During the Second World War, British scientists came to the Bell Labs to share ideas under the Tizard mission. Winston Churchill authorised Sir Henry Tizard to share and exchange certain technologies with the United States as early as 1940, before America was even in the war. British scientists had made some cunning and remarkable breakthroughs, but needed American money and materials to help develop them. The British, for example, had developed radar. The monitoring stations along the south coast, as we know, helped us win the Battle of Britain and stave off invasion. 
but for radar to work better and more accurately across the whole theatre of war, it needed more power. The belting out of shortwave, really short, microwave pulses took furious amounts of juice and the consequent build sizes of radar devices made field radar or on-board radar for Air Force or Navy wholly unfeasible. Two British scientists at the University of Birmingham in England, John Randall and Harry Boot, had brought a device called the Cavity Magnetron to a pitch of perfection no one else had come close to managing. A group from the Tizard mission brought their magnetron, orders of magnitude more powerful than any yet built, to Bell Labs, and Shockley and others fell on it with joy. The physicist Luis Alvarez said that it improved upon contemporary technologies in terms of power output by a factor of 3,000. To try and make sense of such a giant leap in technology, Alvarez put it this way. If automobiles had been similarly improved, modern cars would cost about a dollar and go a 1,000 miles on a gallon of gas. The cavity magnetron has been called the single most important invention of the war. It allowed on-board radar for aircraft and shipping, and it trickled down after the war into our beloved microwave oven. Their use with proximity fuses coupled to anti-aircraft batteries is reckoned to have all but neutralised the doodlebugs, the V1 flying bobs that Germany sent over to London. Randall and Boot are not perhaps as well known as they should be. Randall was especially remarkable. Not only did he contribute to this astounding breakthrough, but he also led a team researching the structure of DNA. His deputy, Maurice Wilkins, shared the 1962 Nobel Prize with Crick and Watson. But that's a whole other other. The magnetron, using, as the name implies, the magnetic side of electromagnetism, sent out microwave pulses and showed that electronics could certainly go further. And Shockley and his team at War's End set about returning to the question of whether or not solid-state semiconductor materials could be used to do the work that vacuum tubes were doing. Two scientists under Shockley at Bell Labs, John Bardeen and Walter Brattain, tested on December the 16th, 1947, a device using germanium crystal with gold point contacts forced in and a paperclip used to wiggle the contact. It worked. It amplified current. It rectified current. It even, and this was the acid test for some, oscillated, produced a continuous wave. Some instantly knew that what had been produced was epoch-making and of the very first importance. A notice went up on the Bell Labs notice board, inviting people to vote for a name for this device. These were the options. 1. Semiconductor triode. 2. Surface states triode. 3. Crystal triode. 4. Solid triode. 5. Iototron. Six, Transistor. I'd have voted for Iototron any day. At which city shall I aim the beams of my new Iototron? London? New York? Tokyo? You choose, Mr. Bond. But the winner was a mixture of the words transconductance and verista, a word for a variable resistor diode much in use in the Bell system. Transistor. It seems that the ultra-competitive Shockley was now inspired, as much by intense rivalry as anything else, to develop on his own an alternative to Bardeen and Brattain's point-contact solid-state transistor. He was maddened that his name, William Shockley, wasn't included on the patent application that Bell had filed for the component, despite his view that it was his work on the so-called field effect that had enabled it. His alternative version, worked at in secret, was called the junction transistor. It utilised the principle of what Bell Labs metallurgists had called P and N states. In a P, or positive conductivity state, the material had a deficit of electrons around its atoms, or a presence of what were called in the jargon holes. The N, or negative state, had an excess of electrons. Shockley's 
junction transistor sandwiched one slice of P-state germanium between two of N, rather than jamming contacts into the material, the way the Bratain-Bardine point contact transistor did. The Shockley junction solution struck everyone as more elegant than the point contact original, and this was the kind of transistor that went on to be rolled out everywhere. The prototype is on display today in a permanent exhibition at the Nokia Bell Labs Murray Hill, New Jersey headquarters. I've actually touched it. I'll tap the very finger that touched it on the microphone. There. So now you've contacted it too. Bardeen, Bratain and Shockley were to share the glory and fame as inventors, but Shockley wrote the definitive book on electrons and holes, explaining the science behind the invention. He hogged most of the limelight. His unethical, private and secret pursuit of a different solution without informing his co-workers or anyone else at Bell isolated him from angry and hurt colleagues. He was not a good manager of people, and his guileful, ambitious, greedy duplicity made him many enemies. The making of enemies fueled an already nascent paranoia that caused more friends to fall away that further fed the paranoia in an unpleasant feedback loop. The world slowly caught on to the potential of the tiny new device. One little Shockley junction transistor drew about one millionth of the power of a vacuum tube. That is the kind of leap we are talking about. So prevalent did they become that they stood in for the name of all solid-state electronics. I remember as a boy in the late 50s and through the 60s, a solid-state radio, as it would be proudly advertised, was actually called a transistor radio or just a transistor. Trannies was used for a time, but, well, quite. My parents had an old valve or vacuum tube set that seemed to take at least 30 seconds to warm up and turn on, as did the TV, but my solid-state transistor instantly on. But earlier, in 1951, Mervyn Kelly, the boss of Bell Labs, tried to explain to an audience of telephone company executives what they had invented stroke discovered. It is the beginning of a new era in telecommunications, he said. No one can quite have the vision to see how big it is. No one can predict the rate of its impact, he went on. In the time he would live, it would have transformed, he said, the world such that the telecommunications systems of the future would be, in his words, more like the biological systems of man's brain and nervous system. Bell knew that their outrageous monopoly survived on sufferance. The moment they used it unethically, the government would be on them. So they released the licensing and general science freely to the world, anxious not to draw Uncle Sam's ire. This discovery was too big to hog. That same year, as Uncle Sam sharpened his knives preparatory to a major suit against IBM for their monopolistic antitrust practices, the Remington Rand Corporation, IBM's only real rival in the world of digital computing, which was all hollerith-punched cards, stunned Big Blue and the world by unveiling their Univac electronic digital computer with vast arrays of vacuum tubes, still the prevailing component for solid-state transistors, were only at the prototype stage at this point. The Univac ushered in a new way of tabulating, registering, sorting and reckoning. And it all depended on the work Claude Shannon and Alan Turing had been doing over the last decade. The story of Alan Turing's role in the cracking of the German Enigma Code is too well known for me to need to go into it in much detail here. Films, plays and documentaries on the subject have proliferated. Aside from his other achievements in cryptography, he supervised the construction of a dedicated electromagnetic cryptanalysis device, the famous Bletchley Park bomb. 
His pure mathematical work seems to have given him a unique insight into applied solutions for cryptanalysis, namely taking his notional idea of a universal computing machine and actually building one. Tommy Flowers, the General Post Office's expert on vacuum tube or valve technology, as we British called it, built the Colossus machine at Bletchley that is a candidate for the first ever digital electronic computer. It not only found solutions, it could also store variables and data. In 1942, Turing was sent to Washington to assist on the construction of one of the code-breaking bombs for the US Navy. And he also visited and stayed at the Bell Labs, where he and Shannon enjoyed a brief but warm friendship. Shannon was fascinated by and had written extensively on cryptography, but the two didn't talk much about that. Perhaps security considerations meant that each knew nothing of the other's secret role in the same field. But Shannon talked with Turing about the very nature of intelligence and whether machines could achieve it. Turing was aware of Shannon's idea that any solution available to Boolean logic, the true-false, and, or, not, nor, and so on of binary numbers, could be achieved using electrical circuits and logic gates. This kind of algebra was named after George Boole, an English mathematician who had elaborated a series of tools for using mathematics to address the question of logic. In usual algebra, expressions refer to a range of numbers, a equals 12, b equals 3, and so on. In Boolean algebra, they only represent one of two values, true or false, which can be represented as the binary numbers 1 or 0. These binary digits, or bits, can satisfy all kinds of logical operations. You can arrange either electromechanical relays or electronic vacuum tubes, or later transistors, to act as switches to create logic gates that open or close according to the Boolean operators and their conditions. I won't, can't, shan't, mustn't, shouldn't, daren't go much deeper than this for all kinds of reasons that you can guess. Even if I could describe it perfectly, it's better understood not with words but with diagrams. The important thing was Shannon's insight that all this logic can also be done by circuitry and switching, and, once the technology arrived, by electronic rather than electromechanical switching. And it can all go into the wiring of a machine which would conform with Turing's idea of a complete universal machine, what was already being called a Turing machine or a Turing complete. Shannon went further than his original master's thesis. In 1948, he published a paper called A Mathematical Theory of Communications, which posited that essentially all communication is the same. Regardless of technology or medium, it will always move from a source to a destination by way of a transmitter to a receiver. In its course, it will encounter the problem of noise. An easy and obvious way to discern the problem of noise getting in the way of communication is to picture someone talking to someone else at a loud cocktail party. But Shannon showed that all communication involves signal having to overcome noise enough to be received accurately. Shannon developed the idea that there is a lot of redundancy in our communications, without which faithful transmission and reception would be clearer and more reliable. It would be possible to drop plenty of elements and still get a clear message. Post drop lots elements still clear. To compress the signal, in other words, without loss of meaning. All communications, he theorised, can be enabled as a signal reduced to bits, literally binary digit bits, like the ones and o's of Boolean algebra. All communication is, in the end, information, and all information is the same, reducible to binary digits. It may seem obvious to us now, but it was the mother of all breakthroughs. Bell Labs was working on a phone system called PCM, pulse code modulation, that offered an example of Shannon's theories in practice. The electrical waves that constitute the call of a human voice or any message could be sampled as they moved up and down. 
Bell's PCM system did this at a rate of 8,000 samples a second. These samples were translated into on-off pulses, bits, binary digits, ones and zeros. So, as science journalist John Gertner, who wrote The Idea Factory, A History of the Bell Labs, puts it, instead of sending waves along phone channels, one could send information that described the numerical coordinates of the waves. The receiving station could then decode the numerical coordinates and reconstitute them into voices without any significant loss of fidelity. This prototypical form of digital communication was shown to work. Shannon's theories concerning signal and noise and the reducibility of information to bits was enhanced by the most extraordinary insight of all in his paper. Gertner again that any digital message could be sent with virtual perfection, even along the noisiest wire, as long as you included error-correcting codes, essentially extra bits of information formulated as additional ones and zeros with the original message. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. I'll be back after a short interval. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So, let's examine our great leaps. One. Turing's universal machine, verified by his work on code-breaking, which opened the door to the possibility of algorithmic programming and universal problem-solving in digital computing. Two, Shannon's master thesis and subsequent communication theory paper, demonstrating that electronics can perform logic and that information can be digitised and communicated without loss through noise. Shannon's work was now being widely referred to as information theory. Three, Bardeen, Brattain and Shockley's development of the solid-state semiconductor, the transistor, and four, the arrival of UNIVAC, the first commercially available digital electronic computer. Another candidate, along with Colossus for first-ever Turing-complete electronic digital computer, was ENIAC, Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. ENIAC was developed at the University of Pennsylvania for wartime use, calculating artillery firing ranges, the very task Shannon had been put to work on by the US government during the war, as it happens. But it was general purpose and could be programmed to do other calculations and data manipulations. Its builders, John Morchley and J. Prepser Eckert, left academia to build the commercial version, UNIVAC, for Remington Rand. 
IBM, being IBM, responded to the threat to their monopoly as quickly as possible, and despite a two-year start from Remington Rand, Big Blue's 701 and 702 line of electronic digital computers came to market and were priced aggressively enough for IBM to make a heavy loss on them and, as they intended, for Remington Rand to start to lose market share as a result. Big Blue's deep pockets and questionable practices once again pushed them to the top of the computer game. They became known as Snow White and their seven smaller competitors, including Remington Rand, as the Dwarfs. By 1952, Thomas Watson Jr. had taken over from his father and was to run the corporation until 1971. For 13 years, Uncle Sam pursued antitrust allegations, the longest attempt in US history, until the moment the Reagan administration came to power and the case was summarily dropped. The sliver of germanium crystal that could have been called the Iototron, but was now known as the Transistor, had by the mid-fifties been refined under Shockley's jealous watch into something that could be manufactured now in quantity, and the prospect of solid-state electronics replacing vacuum tubes in computers, radios, telephone exchanges and televisions was real and imminent. My little transistor radio was ready for mass production. But germanium is a very rare element, and it's hard to grow crystals from it. So other semiconducting materials were looked at. Indium, tellurium, and the whole range of Tom Lehrer rare-earth elements seemed to be tried and discarded until they turned to one that Shockley suggested they look at harder, an element almost comically common on Earth, silicon. By 1956... Bill Shockley's ego and ambition showed that he had no real future at Bell Labs. There was zero chance he would be promoted within the organisation, and few people wanted to work with him. But he was the man who developed the usable, workable, and now bulk-manufacturable transistor. He decided he might as well go home to Palo Alto, California, and set up his own business there, amongst the apricot and almond orchards of his childhood. Most of those who knew him didn't want anything to do with the man, so erratic and difficult his behaviour could be, despite his obvious brilliance and real moments of calm and charisma. Just as he was making the move west, he heard the news that he was to share the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics with Bardeen and Brattain for their discovery of the transistor. You can't say invention, by the way. The Nobel Prize isn't awarded for those, only discoveries. Despite his reputation for difficulty, Shockley's growing fame allowed him to recruit to Shockley Semiconductors, the name he decided to give his company, a number of very bright young people, notably Robert Noyce, Jean Herney, Eugene Kleiner and Gordon Moore, who came out to California with him. The company was funded by Arnold Beckman, a scientist who had previously worked at Bell Labs on vacuum tube technology and had made a good sum of money while teaching at Caltech in Southern California from a device he invented for accurately measuring acidity, the pH meter. He founded Beckman Instruments on the strength of this and other inventions, earning him a considerable fortune, some of which he now ploughed into Shockley Semiconductors, betting on the future of solid-state electronics. There was nothing much in Palo Alto but Stanford University, which had decided to roll out an industrial park in a nearby spot called Mountain View, the kind of commercial-stroke-academic development now very common within the halo of a leading research university, but then more of a novelty. Shockley Semiconductors was the first electronics business to install itself in this part of the world. Fewer new concerns could have had brighter prospects. Led by and named after the man who had just won a Nobel Prize for giving the world the transistor, funded by a brilliant and respected inventor and scientist in Arnold Beckman, and staffed by stunningly gifted young people like Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce, designing and manufacturing silicon semiconductors in the sunny Santa Clara Valley. What could go wrong? What went wrong was William Shockley 
bullheaded, obstinate, difficult, hectoring, intransigent, paranoid, unwilling to listen or adapt. He was the very model of a bad leader or manager. He recorded phone calls and seemed to regard all his colleagues as first rivals, next spies, then enemies and finally traitors. Within a year, eight of his 32 staff had left him to create their own startup. The capital and name for the eight's new enterprise was supplied by one Samuel Fairchild, who had made his name in aviation and photographic instruments, but he too was happy to sink some money into this promising new field. Those who left Shockley Semiconductors for Fairchild Electronics were nicknamed the Fair Children, but the furious and betrayed Shockley's preferred name for them was the Traitorous Eight. Within two years, Noyce, Moore, and Herney in particular, with his so-called planar process of production, had redefined the possibilities of semiconductor manufacture, selling their product to, amongst others, IBM. It culminated with a circuit they produced containing four transistors on one single wafer of silicon, what they called an integrated circuit. In 1968, Gordon Moore and Noyce left Fairchild to found their own company again to push this technology even further. Its name, Integrated Electronics, was shortened to Intel, and their integrated circuits became known as microchips or microprocessors. Shockley, meanwhile, estranged from colleagues and even from his wife and children, degenerated into rather an unfortunate figure. He taught at Stanford University, but his unsavoury theories on racial characteristics, forced sterilization, and eugenics were making him something between a laughingstock and a figure of disgust. A tragic end to a scientist and innovator of such importance and rare talent. Aside from anything else, if he hadn't been born in and returned to Santa Clara, that region wouldn't be better known today as Silicon Valley, and his old premises on Mountain View might not have been chosen for their headquarters, first by Intel and then by Google. Poor old William Shockley. Around this time, the ringleader of the traitorous eight and one of the founding fathers of Intel, Gordon Moore, propounded his famous law. Let's look at one of Claude Shannon's favourite pastimes to get a sense of what it means. A great ruler in the East many years ago called together one day his grand vizier, his ministers and greatest sages. I have defeated all my enemies, and now time lies heavy on my hands, he said. I want some occupation, some pastime, some puzzle that will absorb my time, fulfil my passion for war, strategy, conquest, tactics. Whosoever invents such a thing shall be granted any wish. Well, you can imagine how hard all the wisest and most cunning talents in the empire worked. The designers, creators, poets, planners, inventors, dreamers and visionaries busied themselves to come up with some creation to satisfy the emperor's ennui and win the prize. When the day came, the emperor strode round the great hall of his palace, looking at each of the offerings submitted for his inspection. Gold, silver and brass, forts and castles of immense mechanical sophistication promised hours of realistic gameplay, enough to satisfy any bored imperial warrior, surely. He passed by each stand like a celebrity chef judging a cookery competition, or a duchess at a flower show, sniffing, tweaking, prodding, testing. Nothing tickled him or worked his saliva glands until he came to a table at which sat an old Persian man who gave him a wrinkled, snaggletoothed grin and bade him sit before him and play the game he had invented. It looked very plain next to the great artifices and apparatuses created by the others. A wooden board, two ranks of pale boxwood figures facing across to two ranks of identical ebony figures. The inventor pointed to show the differences. My game is unique because there is no luck, just planning, cunning, skill, daring, and imagination, just like war and just like life. 
Here is the king. In my country, we call him the Shah. I shall be the black pieces. You must attack my Shah. When he has nowhere to move, you may cry, Shahmat, the king is dead. Checkmate, said the emperor. Close enough, said the inventor. He showed the emperor how the chessmen were allowed to move, and they played, and they played and played and played. The emperor had never experienced a game like it, such complexity from such simplicity, such traps, surprises, artful creations and combinations. The other entries in the competition to please his imperial majesty stood no chance. This new game of Shachmat was declared the winner. You may ask me for any reward, said the delighted emperor. My wants are simple, my family small, the inventor replied, removing from the board the few remaining pieces from their last game. You see my chessboard here, eight squares by eight. I would ask for just a grain of rice to be placed on the first square, two on the next, four on the one next to that, then eight, then sixteen, and so on, until you have come to the last square, just adding twice as many grains each time. Ha! cried the emperor, clapping his hands. For all your cunning, you missed a chance to enrich yourself, old man. You are too easily satisfied. Bring a bag of rice. Within moments, the grand vizier was pinching out a single grain from a sack and placing it with haughty disdain onto the first square, A1 in modern chess parlance, or Queen's Rook 1. Two grains he placed on B1, four on C1, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, and finally a hundred and twenty-eight grains on H1, King's Rook 1. The grand vizier was getting bored and had sent for a pair of tweezers. 128 was rather fiddly, and for A2 he would have to count out 128 and then another 128 to fill that square with 256 grains, which was already too much for the square to contain. Uttering a weary oath at the nuisance of it, he chose instead to place a small stone on the square and heap the grains onto a floor tile. B2 needed 512 grains. The emperor saw that this was going to be a boring procedure, waved a hand, and was making to move off when his chief astronomer and mathematician, the most wise and learned sage of the day, stood before him and blocked his way with a respectful bow. "'Sire,' he said in an urgent whisper, "'I have made calculations. By the time the vizier gets to the end of the fourth row, it will require... Two billion grains of rice just to fill that thirty-second square. By the time he is on the second square of the seventh row, over half a trillion grains. By the end of that row, it will be more rice than the world has ever seen. By the last row, more rice than the world could ever see. More than there are stars in the sky. More than there are grains of sand in the desert, mighty one. If you grant his wish, you will bankrupt the empire, and the world will be a parched desert. The king tried to do the sums in his head, then looked at the sums the sage had scribbled on his scratch pad and thought hard. He slowly saw how vast the numbers for each square were. By this time, his sage had calculated the weight of so much rice. No horses, yaks, or dromedaries could carry so much, not in a hundred thousand times a hundred thousand years. The vexed emperor did what any ruler would do, what you and I would probably do in the same circumstances. He had the inventor's head cut off as a warning for others not to get smart with him. And so chess was born, and so too the terror and horror of the remorseless playing out of exponential growth was introduced to humanity. The depth of the game of chess astonished the world. There are more possible games, it turns out, than there are atoms in the observable universe. Ten to the power of 120 games, as opposed to the universe's feeble ten to the power of 80 atoms. This estimation is known, as it happens, as a Shannon number, after Claude Shannon himself and his work on these startling numbers, these game-tree complexities, as they are known in the field. 
brilliance at chess certainly does seem to argue a remarkable intelligence. Masters routinely keep every game they have ever played in their memories, not to mention the thousands of games played by past geniuses of chess and by contemporary rivals. Easy to see, therefore, why chess became a symbol of the highest achievements of our remarkable brain, combining insight, forward planning, calculation, imagination, intuition, flair, memory, concentration, spatial awareness, resilience, determination, and, in its highest flights, creative genius. Mastery of chess meant a complete intelligence, a mathematical intelligence, a strategic intelligence, a tactical intelligence, a visual intelligence, an artistic intelligence. Chess therefore became, from the very beginning, the holy grail as far as the creation of an artificial intelligence was concerned. When Shannon visited Turing in Manchester, England, he noted in his diary that Turing was working on chess-playing programmes there. If mankind could build a machine that was capable of matching or even beating the world's greatest player, it was generally thought that this would be the breakthrough. It would bring us closer to the singularity, the moment when everything changes for us, as epoch-making a day as the day of first contact with an extraterrestrial species, or that atomic test in Almogordo in New Mexico, 1945, or the Permian extinction, when 90% of all life disappeared from the planet, or the day when W.C. Handy discovered the blue note, or that magical morning when someone had the idea of taking the sticky black tar produced as a byproduct of the brewing industry and selling it under the name of Marmite. These seismic breakthroughs come rarely. So, as the 20th century moved on, chess remained on its throne, awaiting the day it could be played by a machine as well as by humans. The grains of rice on the chessboard story has been told in many ways, with many variations, and is often used to explain the havoc exponential growth can wreak and how manageable integers can explode into numbers so vast that our earthbound sublunary imaginations cannot hope to deal with them. Everything in life seems to be exponential. We are the result of exponential division. One cell becomes two, four, eight, then sixteen, and so on, until a blob can somehow arrive in the form of a jellyfish, a grizzly bear, an orchid, or me. Exponential curves show how the smallest elemental building blocks can transform themselves into living structures of mind-boggling complexity by no more than small, recursive iterations of procedures as simple as binary fission, mitosis and meiosis and all the other things I've forgotten from basic school biology. So, back to Gordon Moore, who proposed what has become known as Moore's Law. He said that processing speed stroke power stroke capacity would double every two years. The way he actually put it was to prophesy that it would be possible to double the number of transistors on any given area of silicon every 18 to 24 months, which amounts, broadly speaking, to a doubling of processing power, or perhaps more importantly, to a halving of the cost of computing every two years. The grains of rice were transistors, and the squares were chips of silicon. And extraordinarily, miraculously almost, Moore's prediction, cast to be a guide for industry to help with their planning, turned out to be true. From four transistors on one chip to eight, sixteen, and so on, the ineluctable, terrifying ascent from a slow rise to a sheer wall happened, and is still happening now, each doubling being, of course, of a vaster and more incredibly huge number. With elegant, cruel, symmetrical irony, chess, for so long the very symbol of human intelligence, fell to those very same ineluctable exponential laws that caused, in the old fable, the death of its greedy, rice-loving inventor. The Goliath of machine intelligence was sent out to meet the David of human intelligence 
in the form of chess. 1996 turned out to be the year of the reckoning. Deep Blue, IBM's dedicated chess machine, defeated Garry Kasparov, probably the greatest human player ever to push a pawn. If, back in the 1950s or 60s, you had told one of the fathers of artificial intelligence or of the information age that the day would come when a human-constructed device would beat the world's best chess player, they might have suggested that this moment would mark some kind of real, powerful and potentially terrifying watershed. Yet the deep blue victory did not elicit the reaction that might have been expected because deep blue cheated. It or its team may or may not have played quite fair in the usual sense, but it cheated in a more meaningful way. Rather than devising an intelligence, Deep Blue's team at IBM realised that by the mid-90s, integrated circuits had become powerful enough to look at 200 million chess positions in a second, could throw itself ferociously into every move and counter-move and look deep into scenarios that could offer it the best candidate move in every position. It was remorseless and frightening. Kasparov and others described the experience as feeling that a great, grim, granite wall was approaching them and could not ever be stopped. They were engulfed by the power of the programme. Screw creativity, imagination, insight, understanding and intelligence. This was brute force calculation as mindless but effectively destructive as a cyclone or a swarm of locusts. This victory was not artificial intelligence or indeed intelligence of any kind at all. Deep Blue was a single-task calculating machine that proved nothing other, unfortunately, than that chess wasn't, in the end, so difficult a nut to crack. It wasn't so much a victory for AI as a defeat for human cognitive exceptionalism. Chess had shown itself not to be a symbol of the human brain's unique greatness after all. It was not our champion in the fight for intellectual and cerebral supremacy. Larry Tesla of Xerox Park has a rueful but insightful law named after him. The moment a machine can do it, it's no longer artificial intelligence. The moment Deep Blue defeated Kasparov, chess stopped being a realm for AI. As Noam Chomsky remarked, a computer winning chess is no more surprising than a forklift truck winning a weightlifting competition. Chess, for all its variety and permutational qualities, was downgraded to a sideshow. As Moore's law rolled on, the humiliation was ground further into humanity's face. Very soon, any home computer could do what Deep Blue did and beat any human alive without raising its circuitry so much as a degree Celsius higher. Just to remind ourselves of how Moore's law works... In 1996, the year of the Deep Blue match, the most powerful supercomputer in the world was the ASCII Red, capable of more than a trillion floating-point operations a second, or flops. It stayed the most powerful until the year 2000. It cost $45 million, equivalent of $72 million today. But by the year 2006... All that processing speed of a teraflop per second was available in a Sony PlayStation 3. In other words, in just 10 years, the ASCII Red went from a $70 million supercomputer to the equal of the gaming console in a teenager's bedroom. This is why I think it's sometimes better to think of Moore's Law expressing not so much an increase of power as a decrease in cost. Anyway, back to our story. Chess had been replaced as the go-to trophy for AI to hunt down. The gun sights were now trained on the world's greatest player of the Chinese board game Go. The complexities of Go, with its 19 by 19 square board and identical black and white stones, are so unimaginably 
grotesquely huge that brute force is still a long way away from being a solution. Compared to Chess's Shannon number of 10 to the power of 120, Go has a game tree complexity of 10 to the power of 360. The observable universe has a mere 10 to the power of 80 atoms, you will recall, and most people would probably describe the universe as really most frightfully big. Go presented then a real test for real AI. And forward, to take up the challenge, came machine learning, as embodied by Demis Hassabis and his deep mind AI, latterly acquired by Google. The plan was to deliver on the promise of the artificial neural nets, first posited by the fathers of AI, thinkers and visionaries like Marvin Minsky, Frank Rosenblatt, Ray Kurzweil and others. In March 2016, way earlier than the date Hasabis and his team had dared suggest, DeepMind's AlphaGo program beat one of the game's top players, Lee Sedol, and then... In May of 2017, the world champion KJ fell to AlphaGo, which could now rightly crown itself world champion. For those of us following the development of AI, this really did seem a turning point. Unlike brute force, machine learning allows a computer to learn for itself more or less unsupervised, able to discover its own heuristic strategies and procedures. Given the smallest instructions and the most basic carrot-and-stick drive to reward itself for wins and punish itself for losses, reinforcement learning proved itself capable of play that justified, in the view of Go Masters, the descriptions beautiful, bold, surprising, creative, imaginative, intrepid and artistic. Tesla's rule bids us say, yes, but... Yes, but Go is a closed, abstract system. It has no reference to anything outside itself. It is isolated from the mess and noise of the world. Therefore, winning at Go requires no real intelligence. Well, advocates for deep machine learning could point to IBM's AI system, which Big Blue named Watson, of course, after the father and son who between them ran IBM for 57 years. Watson amazed a lot of people by beating human champions in the long-running TV quiz game Jeopardy. There are still those who think someone from IBM was pulling on levers in the tradition of mechanical chess automata or Professor Marvel in his tent operating the fake Wizard of Oz. But for the rest of us, this astonishing coup demonstrated not only a computer's known ability to access, analyse and reproduce facts at lightning speed, but also a commendable grasp of Jeopardy's perverse and idiosyncratic inverted question-and-answer format, not to mention the tortuous puns, homophones, rhymes and other forms of high-level wordplay necessary to understand a question in the first place. Watson, who is, of course, a bundle of AIs, really, not one master brain, was offline when playing the game, but had all of Wikipedia baked in, naturally, plus more than 200 million pages of other information. And this is where it all gets interesting. The data that AI had to mine in order to play Go were really no more than the millions of games it had played with itself. But Jeopardy's AI needed to grind out, sift, winnow and refine the world's knowledge, such of it that a TV producer might regard as general, at least. Obviously, all deep scientific specialist and more obscure information was ruled out, but even if Watson needed only 0.25% of human knowledge in order to compete on Jeopardy, IBM could fanfare Watson's victory, which, like Deep Blues, was, after all, first and foremost a promotional tool for its sales department, as proof of how efficient a fuel data can be when it comes to powering AI. Just as silicon seems to be reaching a kind of saturation point that might bring Moore's law to an end, so gallium arsenide and other semiconductor media look to be taking us to the era of quantum computing. Put the giant leap in computing power quantum stabilization will bring about, together with brute force, deep machine learning, reinforcement learning, language recognition, universal data mining, 
and you start to get closer to something you might tentatively call intelligence. Our brain, after all, has compartments too. Two hemispheres divided into many chambers, lobes and areas of specialty. We, like machines, have regions that process data and access memory banks and lookup tables. Has Moore's law really taken us this far? Is the copper wire that leads from Volta via Faraday, Morse, Bell, Edison, Tesla, Shockley, Shannon and Turing slowly turning into an umbilical cord that will power the birth of new sapient robotic or cyborg life on our planet and soon? I end where I began standing on the shore and looking out across the ocean of discovery where the swells are building with ever-increasing mass and speed. The swell of robotics, of AI, nanoscience, the Internet of Things, quantum computing, genomics, gene editing, bio-augmentation, bionics, autonomous weaponry and transport, brain-machine interfacing, all these existentially transformative developments are gathering pace and momentum now. And when they converge and coalesce, they will create a remarkable future. The first humans to live to 200 years old have already been born. There is so much in our past we can look back on with exasperation, disbelief, shame, wonder, and pride. It is impossible to doubt that we have just as much to look forward to in our future. Until we meet again, if you have been, thanks for listening. We'll be back with Series 2 later this year. You've been listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. Also thanks to the Audio Network. For further information on the podcast series, visit stephenfry.com forward slash Great Leap Years. Great Leap Years is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. This is a Sam Fry Limited production.